Hey guys, it's Lauren Schmidt, Director of Ministry at Christ Centered Church, and you are listening to Christ Centered Cast. Now, when we talk about God's favor, I want us to understand what I mean by favor. Favor is really God's happiness or pleasure. It's not like He's picking or choosing us based on something that we did. In fact, favor is generally speaking not earned. It's not something we can get from God because we were a good boy or a good girl. It's not based on the merit of our lives. God's favor is really a part of his sovereignty. Now, what we choose to do can impact his favor, his pleasure, his happiness. And it's something that we should look for. And instead of looking for our circumstances to get better, we should instead seek God's happiness and God's favor, God's pleasure, and trust him with the circumstances. And we see that in Psalm 85. Let's look at Psalm 85 tonight. Beginning in verse 1, the psalmist writes, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Selah. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore to us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let us hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Let's dedicate this time of scripture to the Lord, and we'll see what he has for us here. Father God, thank you so much for your text and for working through the lives of these people in order to show us how we too can live for you, Lord, and how we can look at life and how we should look at life as those who know your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would take away your truth tonight. We would apply it and write it on our hearts. And ultimately, that it would keep us when we are struggling with the difficulty of life at times. And it's in your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if God's not so interested in changing our circumstances, but more interested in changing us, that tells us that we should be seeking something other than trying to change our own circumstances and make them better, because he's ultimately in control anyway. What we do have control over, though, is whether or not we seek his favor. And when we look at the text tonight, when we look at Psalm 85, we're going to, in fact, see four things that we can do to seek the Lord's favor. Four things that we can do or really look at in our lives in order to seek his happiness or please God. Because that is what is going to sustain us when life is difficult, when life is hard, when things don't seem to be going the way that we think they should. Now, this particular Psalm 85 was written by the sons of Korah. Basically, you can think of them like Hillsong, B.C. So they were a worship group. For those, You can look it up later. They were a worship group who composed several of the Psalms, and they composed Psalm 85. So what we have here is essentially someone who wrote this was processing the circumstances of their life, and they were looking at how things were going and why things weren't going better. 
In fact, this particular psalm, much like Psalm 147 a couple weeks ago, was written after God's people returned back, returned home following their exile to Babylon. So they found themselves frustrated, though, because they look at their, they look at their circumstances and they're like, well, God, thank you for bringing us home and, and making us not slaves anymore. But why aren't things better? And really, isn't that human nature? Isn't that how we look at life? Something will finally go our way and it's cool for a bit. But then all of a sudden, because it's human nature, we go, well, why isn't this better? And that's how it was here. They were free. They were heading home again. God was reestablishing them. He was building the walls in Jerusalem. He was rebuilding a temple. And yet his people were like, ah, we just want things to be better. And this is them processing that. And they were frustrated because they wanted things to be better. They recognized that going home again was an act of God's mercy, but they were somehow struggling with that they believed they were lacking his favor. They thought, well, we must not be right with God. There must be something that we've done or can do, or there must be some kind of disconnect that God is allowing us to go through these circumstances still. And we thank him for his mercy, but man, is there something else we can do? And while we know that favor can't be earned, Scripture tells us that it is something that we can seek. So when we talk about seeking the Lord's favor, his pleasure, and his happiness, the first thing that we can do in order to seek the Lord's favor, his pleasure, his happiness, is we can thank the Lord. We can thank the Lord, verses 1 through 3. We see here that upon reflection, they're reflecting God's freedom. God freed them from slavery. He provided for them the things that they needed and gave them what they needed by way of resources and their home again and all of these things he provided. And when we thank the Lord, we can see that they first thank the Lord for his provision. And that's something that we can thank the Lord for as well in our lives. Because no matter what circumstances we're going through, this is not the first time we've gone through difficult circumstances, right? If you look at your life, even if your life is rough right now, this is not the first time in your life that it's probably been rough. And yet you're still here today. God brought you through that. He provided and brought you to where you are now. And he does that. He provided for his people as he brought them home again. He made sure that they had all of their needs. He helped them, to some degree at this point, reestablish themselves as a people. He took care of them. He delivered them. He provided, much like he does for us. And so they begin this psalm, and I, I love that this psalm starts this way because not all of them do. Many of them start as seeming complaints, and then they get to the place where the psalmist goes, oh yeah, God, you're awesome, thank you, we're looking to you again. But this psalm starts with them thanking him for what he's done already. And, and they say, Lord, you are favorable to our land, you restored the fortunes of Jacob. We recognize that you took care of us and that you brought us out of slavery and brought us home again, that you're meeting our needs, that you're reestablishing your people, you're rebuilding your city. And they thank him for his provision. And after that, they then go on to thank him for his forgiveness. They, the, the writer writes, you forgave the iniquity of your people, you covered all their sin. Well, what they're talk, was talking about there when he wrote this was that what got them into slavery in the first place in Babylon, and that was their idolatry. They had turned their back on God. They were worshiping false idols. They said, God, we don't need you. We're going to do things our way. And God said, Okay, if you don't need me, do things your way. And that led to them being taken over, the temple being destroyed, and them being taken into slavery in another country. And so that didn't work out so well, did it? As they wept and mourned and wailed for the fact that their, their lives were now essentially, essentially slavery. But they repented. 
And that's how God's people work if you follow scripture, is that they go, God, we don't need you. And then God says, okay, then you do it your way. And they get themselves in trouble. And then they cry out to God and go, oh, well, God, I guess we do need you. And then God says, okay. And he saves them from that and rescues and delivers them from that. And then after a while goes by, they go, oh, God, we don't need you. And then he goes, oh, here we go again. And he's, okay, fine, do things your way. And then things happen, bad things. And then they go, oh, God, we need you again. And he says, okay. And God is just wonderful that way because he keeps coming back when his people repent. And he forgives them. He forgave them for that time of idolatry. They suffered the consequences of that sin by being enslaved in Babylon. And then when they repented, he delivered them. And they thanked him for it here in Psalm 85, verse 2. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. And so he references the Old Testament sacrificial system. Those of us that know Jesus Christ know that when you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you accept his forgiveness, that your sin isn't merely covered, it's completely taken away. But for God's people at this particular time, they were still operating under the old system. And so that's why the writer references it that way. And he says their sin was covered. You forgave them. You forgave the sin of your people. You covered all of their sin. And they thanked God for that. They said, thank you, Lord, first for providing for us and delivering us. But thank you also for forgiving us. And we can do that, too. And, you know, I believe that when we do that, when we recognize what God has done in our lives to this point, how he's provided for us, and we recognize and remember the fact that he's forgiven us, these are things that please him and make him happy. These are things that bring us into his favor. And we can't, like I said, we can't earn his favor, but we can certainly position ourselves so that he can bestow it upon us. And that's the distinction. So we see that they thank the Lord for his provision. They thank him for his forgiveness. And then they thank him for his forbearance. Again, this is something that if you've been a believer long enough, you've experienced falling on your face. You've experienced living well in the Lord for a while, and then you make a poor choice or something happens, and you have to ask forgiveness. You have to repent for it. You have to be restored. And we see that they experience, and we too experience, what's called the Lord's forbearance. Verse 3, the writer writes, You withdrew all of your wrath, you turned from your hot anger. So they recognized that being enslaved in Babylon was a consequence for their sin. That it was God's wrath, his anger at their sin that brought about these circumstances. They recognized that. And they recognized that after he forgave them and he delivered them from slavery in Babylon, that that anger had been covered. It had been covered by the sacrifices, by their for, by the forgiveness that he gave them. And he, he reflects on that. He, he's thinking about that. The psalmist writes, God, I, I remember that you gave, forgave your people. And man, I'm glad that you're not mad like that anymore. And you know, that's the thing. Sometimes God gets mad at our sin. He does. Now, thankfully, because of Jesus Christ and him taking away all of our sin, not just covering it, when he looks at us, he sees Christ. Because his anger, his wrath was already taken out on Jesus Christ on the cross. He took that wrath for us. But that wasn't the case in the Old Testament for the psalmist as he wrote this. So he says, man, thank you, God, for withdrawing your wrath, for turning from your hot anger at our sin. We've been delivered. You've freed us. We've been forgiven. 
Lord, we thank you for that. Now, keep in mind, in the back of in the situation going on here, he's thanking God for all this while looking at his circumstances and going, man, I wish things were still a little bit better. It's a wild dynamic, isn't it? But isn't that how we are as people? We recognize what God does in our lives, and yet we still find time to complain about how we wish things were better. It's nothing new. But we see here that as we look to seek God's favor, one of the things that we can do that puts us in place to receive that, to experience his pleasure and his happiness, is by first thanking him. We can thank the Lord for his forbearance. Because not only did he send Jesus Christ to die for our sins so that we didn't have to experience his wrath, we too also now have a God who forbears putting any more of that wrath upon us. We don't have to suffer for that sin. We don't have to be separated from God for all of eternity in hell. He has forborne that. He's, he's withholding that. So we see that he thanks. The psalmist thanks the Lord for his provision. He thanks the Lord for his forgiveness. And he thanks the Lord for his forbearance. When was the last time that you thanked the Lord for those things that he's done in your life already? Not only speaking of your eternal state, and your position in Christ, and the forgiveness of your sin, but even day to day, when was the last time you thanked the Lord for the fact that he's delivered you from some situations, from some people, from some circumstances? Maybe out of a sin that you've struggled with for years. Maybe you've had, found some growth. When was the last time you thanked him for that? And really, when was the last time you thanked Christ for taking God's wrath? For bringing us to a place now where, while God still gets angry at our sin, he doesn't cast that anger upon us. I mean, it's huge things to thank God for that each day we typically go through and don't think anything about. We just do what we do every day. And how much of God's favor are we missing out on by not spending time thanking him for what he's done in our lives already? So we see the first thing that we can do in order to seek the Lord's favor, in order to seek his happiness, in order to please God, is that we can thank him. We can thank him for those things. The second is this. Not only can we thank the Lord, but we can ask the Lord. We can ask the Lord. So what does the psalmist ask the Lord about? Well, we see, look, look at verse 4 and 5 first. He says, Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? So we look at this and then we think back to three and it's like, wait a second. Is that some kind of a contradiction in concept? Well, no, because what he's talking about here is the psalmist transitions to this particular section is he's not talking about the wrath of God over the sin that was committed. He's referring to the ongoing consequences of that because when God is angry at our sin, things happen. They were taken into slavery in Babylon. The minute they repented, they weren't freed. That's not how it works. They still had to live with for a while the consequences of the sin that they had committed and the choices and circumstances that they were facing. So the psalmist, in his mind, is looking at their current situation and the fact that he's not, he doesn't believe that God's people are living their best life, to use some uh, common vernacular. And he's like, well, maybe, maybe it's some leftover consequences from the fact that we just were delivered and, and restored. We were just brought home uh, from Babylon. So when he says he asks God, he wants God essentially to 
uh, bring things back to the way they were before he sinned. And don't we do that sometimes? When we do something, we say something, we act some way that we shouldn't, and then there are consequences, and we go, man, I just wish I could take that back and things could be like the way they were before. That's human nature too. However, that most often, almost all of the time, you don't get back what things were like before. But he's longing for a state where things were good, seemingly in his mind, with God. And that's what he's asking about here. He's actually asking God for God's favor. He says, God, I want things to go back the way before. I know maybe circumstances can't go back, but God, our relationship can. That's the thing. That's the thing. When we sin and we have a we break fellowship with God, when we sincerely repent and we turn back to him, he wants to bring things back in our relationship with him like they were before. He wants to restore our relationship with him. And sometimes there is restoration in the circumstances of our life, but again, most often not entirely. But it doesn't stop him from asking for that. You see, he says, Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. In other words, Lord, please change, if you can or will, the consequences of the things that have played out here. We want to follow you and serve you and go back to the way things were before we sinned and before we suffered those consequences. And he asks them, he actually says, God, will you restore us? Will you restore us? Will you take away those consequences, which he's perceiving to be God's anger, continued ongoing anger, not his initial wrath about the sin, but the ongoing consequences associated with it. Will you change that, God? Will you restore us? Will you put us back in a right place with you, God? And I believe that pleases God when we turn back to him. I believe every time we turn back to the Lord, if we do anything outside of his will and outside of, of the scriptures that he gives us. When we repent and we turn back and we say, God, I want things to be good with you. I believe that pleases him. I believe that makes him happy. He says so in his word. And we're going to see a little bit more about that in just a minute. So he, he asked the Lord for restoration, but then he goes on and asks him for revival. Now, when we think of the word revival, we often think of uh, praise breaking out in mass somewhere among a group of people, and all of a sudden things are completely different spiritually than they were before. And yet I, I don't exactly uh, pick that up here. I mean, there's there probably an element of that here, but he does in fact talk about rejoicing and revival, and he makes that connection, and that's really what it is. But I believe it's not just collectively community, it's also individually too. The psalmist writes, Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? He says, Lord, we want your favor. We want to bring you pleasure. We want to make you happy. And as a result of that, so that we can then have joy in you and rejoice to you. And I believe there was both an individual and corporate element. Because what is, what is a corporate? What is a corporation, really? It's just a bunch of people in one place doing one thing together. And in order to get that corporate, aspect you have to have the individual people all doing that same thing and he's asking for that among god's people he says lord give us a revival give us a spiritual uplifting of sorts so that we can use that then to praise you that's what we want to do he's asking the lord for this asking the lord for revival it's interesting though that he's asking specifically so that it brings benefit to god He's not asking for revival so that the church can be revived for themselves. I think sometimes in, in church and in ministry, we selfishly ask for revival. 
just because we want people to be more spiritual. And yet, really, when we talk about revival and revival in Scripture, it's always to go up, to bring honor and glory to the Lord. That's revival. It's not just what takes place here in the seats. It's really what takes place in heaven. And we see that here in the text. He says, Lord, we want revival. Restore us. Revive us. And then he thanks the Lord for his love. And he, he asks the Lord specifically for the Lord's love. Look at this in verse 7. It's fantastic. He says, show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. He asks for the, that, that covenant love, that, that permanent love. He says, Lord, we want to know and experience your ongoing eternal love forever. The love that, that isn't broken as a result of God's people not keeping up their part of the covenant. He asks for that kind of love. He asks the Lord for his ongoing, enduring, steadfast covenant love. You know, we ask the Lord for a lot of things, don't we? We might ask him for stuff in our lives. We might ask him for things in our families. We might ask him to change this or that in our circumstances. But when was the last time that you asked him to restore your fellowship with him? to revive your heart so that you can give honor and glory to the Lord and praise him with it and ask him to experience his love, his covenant love that isn't in any way tied to your circumstances or even your relationship with him. Because that steadfast ongoing love is a love that happens no matter where you're at and what you're doing. That's the kind of love that a parent has for a child even when that child is disobedient, right? Because if you're a good parent and you love your kids and you're a parent that reflects God's love, even if they make poor choices or choices that you don't think they should make or they do something you don't want them to do, you still love them. And that's what he's seeing here. That's what he's asking for from God. He wants to experience that. And the people would sing this. They would be led in worship to sing these things. Much like Kendra did such an awesome job with picking the songs for tonight because so many of the themes in those songs are tied into this particular passage and that's what we were singing to the lord about before i started preaching and now we see the psalmist or rather the psalmist is i know that's not the plural but uh psalmist i no but the many psalmists who wrote and sang this that's what they were asking for too they want to know restoration revival and love that's what we should ask god for and i believe when we ask god for those things it makes him happy and it pleases him and we seek his favor when we do that. So we see that we thank the Lord, and then we see that we ask him. And now here we go with listening to the Lord and obeying him, because there is that element too. It's not the specific good and bad that we do that makes God like us or not like us. It's an overall heart of obedience, and we see that here in the text. So we hear the Lord. We hear what he's saying to us. We hear from the preaching and teaching and the singing and reading his word. We, we know what pleases him from scripture. We hear it and then we do it. And I think it's very interesting in this text because he starts out in those first seven verses talking about you, 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 you referring to God. And then in this verse here in verse eight, which in interestingly is kind of middle-ish on this thing. And often when you look at the Psalms and really there's different parts of scriptures what are called chiasms. They make as here's your too long, didn't read uh, instruction on chiasms. In scripture, sometimes in the Old Testament, 
truths were written, the same truth is written in the first verse of the passage, and then it's written maybe in the last verse, and then there, there's two, two themes, and then these two themes are related or similar or the same, and then you work your way in, and if you do that, you can find the meaning of the whole passage. I think Joshua 1, I believe, is an awesome chiasm. But we kind of see that here, because he's, Lord, you, 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 and then the one time he says, me, he says, look at this. He says, let me hear what God will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. So he says, Lord, let me hear you. Let me know what you're saying to me. Let me know what you want me to do and how you want me to live. He says, let me hear you when you speak. And in the midst of that, you see, he, he says, we hear the Lord. We, we accomplish this hearing of the Lord like he's talking about here when we obey his word. How do we know that? We see that in the rest of the verse where he says, we hear the Lord, he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but, but, let them not turn back to folly. So we know there he's talking about obedience. He's saying, don't let, is don't let us turn back to the sin that got us here in the first place, that got us enslaved in Babylon. Then we had to be, we had to be forgiven, we had to be delivered, we had to come home again. Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to know what you want us to do. We want to obey Lord, help us not to turn back to the sin that got us where we were. And I believe that that brings God, God's favor in our lives when we ask us, or rather we ask him to help keep us from sin, to protect us from sin. And we sincerely want that. It's not just uh, words that we say, but genuinely from our heart when we want to avoid sin and we ask, I believe that brings God pleasure. It, makes, it brings him happiness. It brings his favor. We hear the Lord when we obey him. And then also we hear him when we fear him and revere him, when we have a reverence for God. Verse 9, surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. So he is essentially calling to the Lord and he says, Lord, we hear you. We hear what is important to you. Obedience. In fact, in the Old Testament, we hear that theme with, with Saul. That was what got him into trouble, is that he disobeyed and said, why sacrifice to God so I'm good? And Samuel said, that's not really how this works. Because obedience is better than sacrifice, he tells him. And that's the thing. God, when we obey God and we live according to his word, that makes him happy. It pleases him. We place ourselves in a position to receive his favor when we live in obedience and when we demonstrate an attitude of reverence and fear for him. Not being scared, but rather understanding his power, who he is, and giving him the glory that he's due. And he even talks about that here, when he talks about the glory dwelling in the land. He says, Lord, we want your presence back. We fear you. We revere you, Lord. So we see that demonstrated here when he, he, he says, Lord, we hear you. When was the last time that you communicated to God that you want to obey him, you want to obey his word, you want to live for him? When was the last time you told him how awesome he is not just like, dude, you're awesome, but like, man, I have nothing but awe for you, Lord, because you are that amazing. You're that powerful. He says, Lord, we are in awe of you. When was the last time you said that to God himself? Because I believe that that makes God happy. That brings pleasure. That puts us in line for God's favor. So we see here as he says, we hear you, Lord. Thank the Lord. Ask the Lord. Hear the Lord. And then here's the fourth, as we finish the text today. 
Expect the Lord. Expect the Lord. Well, what do we expect? You see, we can expect things from God when he's promised them. We can't just expect him to do whatever we want him to do. But we can expect that he is going to do what he says he will do. And in fact, we should live in a place of expectation when he has promised us things. Because God is a God of his word, and we can count on him to keep his promises. So the writer of the psalm here says to expect things from God. And, and there's some wonderful poetic imagery here that people have even painted. I didn't put any of the paintings up here, but there are people who have painted personifications of these images here where we see in verses 10 and 11, the psalmist writes, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. And people have taken the time to paint those beautiful paintings of those things as though these uh, things were people. It's great. But we see that here in the text where he's expecting things from the Lord. Now, the imagery here points to a couple things. And really what it means to boil it down is we expect the Lord to show love without compromise. The psalmist is saying, Lord, we know that you're, you love us. And you're going to show us that love, but you're not going to compromise your holiness and your righteousness in order to do it. Now, that is important because sometimes in life, when we love people, even with the best of intentions, when we love them, we will not always do the right thing. We'll compromise. We'll go, I know I should do this difficult thing in their life and in our life, but we don't do it. We compromise. We let love get in the way of righteousness, or vice versa. We know that we shouldn't do something, and yet we act because there's something within us, and really it's ultimately the flesh or our sin, that tells us to do this thing even though we shouldn't because we love them. And what we have here is he's saying, Lord, we know that you are perfect, and you have perfect righteousness, you have perfect love, and you can still love us and still act rightly without sin, and we know that you're going to do that. We know that no matter what you do in our lives, God, you're going to be righteous, but you are going to love us wholly and perfectly. And he, he paints this picture, this imagery of that. He expects the Lord to show love without compromise. And then in verse 12, we see that he expects the Lord to restore everything in the future. Now, we've talked before about prophecy, and really this psalm is, has some pro prophetic elements and themes. And just a reminder, when we've talked about prophecy before, it's like a mountain range. When you get to that mountain range, you can see some mountains in the, in the, in the immediate presence. You can look right at them, and you can see them pretty clearly. You can make out what's going on there. You can see the trees, and you, maybe you can even see if you're close enough, every tree on the mountain. However, behind that mountain, or those mountains that you can see clearly, there are mountains in the background, in the distance, that you can't see clearly. You can't make out every single tree. You don't know exactly what's going on back there, but they're big enough that you can see the lines of them, and you can kind of make them out maybe even a little bit. And biblical prophecy works that way, too, with the books of the prophets and some of the imagery in the Psalms, where the psalmist, when he wrote this under the inspiration of God, I believe, was looking to... His people's restoration, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the walls, the temple, the city, and the people coming back home again. 
But I believe there's a prophetic element here that the psalmist is referring to when he's speaking of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that is to come. When the Lord comes for his thousand-year millennial reign and then after that restores God's people, which he's promised. He brings them all home to a new heaven and new earth. So I believe he has those two elements in mind under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, even if he doesn't understand that's exactly what the future looks like. Maybe it's vague, but he knows and he believes, he expects a future restoration for God's people. And we too can look forward to that. Because without diving too much into eschatology, I too believe that we're going to be around for that. And we're going to experience some of the blessings of that new Jerusalem, that new heaven and that new earth in the future. We don't replace God's people. They're still God's people. And he treats them how he treats them. But we, as his children, those that know him through Jesus Christ and have relationship with him, will be able to experience those awesome blessings in the future. So he's expecting God to make things better as much as God will and God wills in the immediate future. But he knows no matter what, that in the distant future, God is going to make everything right according to his will. And we can know that too in our own lives. No matter how hard your life is, there is going to be good, there's going to be bad, and it's probably going to go up and down. But ultimately, you can know when you have a relationship with Christ that one day you can look forward to being with God forever when everything is wonderful. Or like the Lego movie, when everything is awesome. So he's expecting that from the Lord, and we can expect that too. And he talks ultimately, lastly, in verse 13. He's expecting one final thing, and that is, the return of the Lord, the Lord's presence among them. Again, mountain ranges. So he's thinking in terms of the temple being the place where God resides and the restoration of that. For us, we know now we look forward to Jesus Christ's return when he'll come down and he'll take us to be with him in heaven. And then ultimately we'll come back later for that whole heaven and new earth thing that we just talked about. But we too can look forward to the Lord's return. When he's thinking about it, he's thinking about the restoration of the temple and God's presence among his people. He says, righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. And when I pictured this image in my mind, it's like God walking with heavy steps and digging out this trench with his feet. And then his people following in line behind him and following him as he's made this way for them to walk. And there's that beautiful imagery of the Psalms here. Because the Lord will, he does come back in the picture of the temple, but we too know Jesus Christ will return as well. He expects that of God because God is God said he would do it. He promised that. Just like in scripture, God's promised us that Jesus Christ will return if we live long enough here on this earth in the flesh, unless God takes us home sooner. We can expect that. And no matter how difficult life is, no matter how hard our circumstances are, we can seek to please God. We can seek his favor. We can seek his happiness. We can seek his pleasure. And one of the ways that we can do this is by expecting him to keep his promises. And it doesn't matter what we're going through. We always have those which act as anchors for us. And as the psalmist processes, he starts by thanking God for what he did and bringing the people back in spite of how things maybe looked or felt at the time. He, he then asked the Lord for a restoration of sorts to try to get things back to Maybe a status quo that could be attained, but and maybe not circumstantially, but definitely in his relationship or their relationship with God asks for that. And he says, Lord, we hear you. We want to hear you. That makes God happy, too, because God wants us to hear his word and to obey it and to fear him. 
And then he says, Lord, we expect you to keep your promises. We know that you will, and we trust you to do so. And, and I believe that if we take these four things and we internalize them and we make them a part of our lives regularly, these will be the things that will bolster us when the circumstances in our lives go up and down, because these things don't. And honestly, if we're making God happy, that's far more important than us being happy. Because he'll take care of us. When was the last time that you thought about whether or not you had the Lord's favor in your life? Whether or not you positioned yourself in such a way to receive it? Again, we don't earn it, but we can certainly please the Lord and place ourselves in his pleasure and his happiness. Now, if you answered that question that you haven't thought about it in a while, or maybe ever, you can do that today. You can change how you look at your life. You can change how you look at your circumstances. And most importantly, you can change what you focus on. Because that article wasn't entirely wrong. When the, the author in that article that I started with at the outset, when he said that oftentimes we look at all the wrong in our lives and all the bad and the terrible things, and we miss out on the right and the good, well, that, that good is God, really, for us that know him. It's not just the things going our way, but it's the God that we know in our relationship with him. And if we shift our focus to him and to our relationship with him and we seek to make him happy and please him and trust him to take care of it all, he will. He will. And I think we'll be surprised with how differently we feel as we move through it. Stop, we stop focusing on our own happiness relative to our circumstances and instead make our goal seeking his happiness. And if you'll do this, if you'll make that your focus, your circumstances may not change for the better, but you certainly will. Let's pray. Father God, thank you again for this psalm. Thank you again for giving us your words to guide us so that we can see your awesomeness and your power through how you moved and worked through your people and how you want to move and work in us. And God, I pray that we would hear and obey and that we would thank you and we would regularly dialogue and ask you, Lord, what makes you happy? And also that we would look in your word and see what you've already told us. And God, I pray that even when we experience the most difficult things in our lives, that we would most importantly not care about how easy or hard life is and whether or not we're happy about it, but that we'd be more concerned, maybe even exclusively concerned, with how happy you are and whether or not we're doing things that make you happy. Lord, thank you so much for the salvation of your son, Jesus Christ, who did not cover our sin, but instead wiped it completely away. And Lord, I ask that if there's anyone here listening now, or maybe even the weeks, months, years to come, that if they're not certain of their relationship with you, God, through Jesus Christ, that they would ask for forgiveness for the sin that they've committed throughout the course of their life, that they would ask for Jesus Christ to take that away, and that they would commit to living for you so that they can know the expectation of the awesome things that are to come. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless as you go forth to preach, teach, and reach others to the gospel of Jesus Christ.
Thanks for listening. Tune in next week.